Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Other 50. As in previous episodes, we invite amazing and fascinating, absolutely brilliant ladies to join us on the show, not to talk about their gender, because that would be too obvious, but to talk about what's really interesting things that they're working on, and hopefully for a chance to get to know a little bit better about her. So today, we have Nina Mohanty join us on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to not talk about my gender. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because that would be like, yeah, okay, we are fascinating, we kick ass, but you know, there's more behind the gender. Um, So let's start with the obvious. You just came back to the state side, to the left coast um, of the United States, um, across a big pond of water. You speak Chinese, you you speak French, and obviously English. I have actually seen you tweet in Chinese, which was amazing. Um, you lived in the UK, you lived in Austria, now you're back here. You're everywhere. Aside from being a global citizen, who is Nina? And, and tell us what you're doing right now with Klarna. Yeah, so um, I guess global citizen pretty much encompasses it. It's such a cheesy thing maybe to say these days because... I think everyone has the capacity and potential to be a global citizen. But um, I identify as the daughter of immigrants, um, an an Indian father, a Taiwanese mother, um, a Silicon Valley native, born and raised, a proud American. Um, Then I was an uh, expat for a while. I lived actually in France as well, so... I lived in Paris and studied there. I was a bartender and an au pair during that time. Don't tell my father. He does not know. Um, (laughs) And then I I went to to the the other side of the channel, to the UK, and was studying there and had the opportunity to jump around. And I identify as an extremely insatiably curious person. Um, curious about all things, not just fintech or financial services or banking, which is just happens to be where I, you know, spend a majority of my time and what pays my paycheck each we- uh, every two weeks now. But um, I am now working for Klarna, which is incredibly exciting. For those that don't know, Klarna is now, I believe, the most valuable fintech in Europe at um, an over $5 billion valuation. And it was started in Stockholm about 15 years ago and is actually a licensed bank, so not very many people know that, but is most well known for its kind of flexible payment options. And so I was hired and um, moved from my beloved London to help build out its growth in the U.S. as um, this space is really heated up, as Americans would know. Um, There are a lot of competitors, and so we're just doing what we can to uh, help play our part. Well, beyond Klarna, you've been uh, at Bud, you were at MasterCard, you worked on the trade service, um, you've bounced around quite a bit around fintech, uh, and you're doing an awful awful lot of other things. I mean, what what gets you most excited, you know, beyond what you're doing today with Klarna, like in the space? Yeah, so 
thanks for, for reminding me. I always forget about those other parts of my life. Um, feels like so long ago. Actually, you know, Wednesday feels so long ago. So that's saying something. Um, yeah, so I did actually start my career out in the foreign commercial service in the Obama administration. And I actually, my undergrad studied international relations uh, with an emphasis on security studies. So I was basically studying war and terrorism, <laughs> which is not the uh, most cheerful subject. It's a little bit different than FinTech too, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and I think I kind of fell into that because my parents are, or were both kind of OG Silicon Valley developers. Um, my father was a network engineer. My mother was a QA engineer. Um, and so they're very left-brained. My younger brother is very left-brained. And I am the black sheep of the family. <laughs> I'm very right-brained. I am obnoxious and loud and extroverted. And I love people. And um, I, there is no black and white with me. Everything is technicolor. And so when they said, go be a doctor or a lawyer... <laughs> I said, absolutely not. And so we settled on international relations as a middle ground. Um, but from that point, when you do study war and terrorism every day, um, it's really sad because people become a statistic. Uh, casualties become statistics. And I felt I was losing a bit of my humanity, which is why really my first job out of Davis, University of California Davis, was um, with the Foreign Commercial Service. And so I kind of dipped my toe into what global trade looked like. Um, that was back in the day when the Obama administration was doing a lot of negotiation for the transatlantic and the um, Pacific trade deals. And it was really fascinating to see things from a macro perspective. But um, for those that work in the public sector, as I'm sure they're very aware, it was incredibly bureaucratic. And so while I have an intense love for public service, that's kind of what catapulted me into doing my master's degree in management and international management. I have two master's degrees. And that's where I fell into fintech working at MasterCard. And I think what excited me, and I say fell into fintech because I did not expect ever in my life to work in financial services. Um, as I mentioned, very right-brained, didn't think there was um, a place for me in financial services. So being able to work at MasterCard, which I genuinely believe is one of the greatest, like, not Fitzy, uh, Forbes, we're in the US, uh, Forbes, 100, 500, whatever, um, businesses to work for. It was really great because back in the day in the UK, I was sitting back to back with the prepaid team when Monzo in the UK was Mondo and when Revolut was on the MasterCard start path and everything was just kind of kicking off with the challenger banks. And that was fascinating to me because I had effectively run away from the Silicon Valley and big tech because I was starting to see tech being used in unethical ways. And so it was refreshing then to be all of a sudden in financial services 
and seen tech being used for good. And I will caveat this right now and just be very open and say that I am a total idealist. I am naive in my hope of a better world, um, on my, in my constant efforts to make the world a better place, whether that is scolding my roommate for keeping the water running and the lights on, or on my crusade for financial inclusion. Um, total idealist. And I saw an opportunity that was being taken by these fintech businesses to build a better world using tech. And so that's kind of what has drawn me to fintech. It's what's kept me in this crazy world, this circus that we call fintech is the hope of building something good and better. And whether we can do that with a better tech stack or not remains to be seen, but I, I hold up hope for that. So for me, it's really my, I'm a bleeding heart for financial inclusion in everything that I do and will be forever. <laughs> One of the other things um, that I see that you do, kind of looking at your background, you, you have some volunteer experiences, um, including a group called I Can Be. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what's the purpose of the group? Yeah, so I actually stumbled across I Can Be thanks to a dear friend, Carrie Osman, and it was founded by a woman named Lamora Byford in London, who is coincidentally also in a London School of Economics graduate. And basically, I think we talk a lot and, you know, here we are not talking about gender, but then also talking about gender. Um, we talk a lot about the lack of women in various um, industries and, you know, the pipeline. It's always the pipeline. And what I saw with Lamorna was that she was directly trying to tackle that pipeline. And so basically what I Can Be does is, um, I think they've now moved out of just London and also included Birmingham in the UK, but they um, basically take a group of, of girls aged maybe seven to eight years old from underprivileged schools around London. And then they find volunteers um, around the city or wherever the program is in who are in non-stereotypically female roles. So it was really stunning to me actually in my time at MasterCard, maybe to go back a bit, I was kind of one day came into work and someone said, oh, we've got some work experience gals here. Can you just entertain them for a minute? So I walked in and I didn't really know what to say or what to do. I was what, like 23 years old? And I said, okay, well, let's start with what do you want to be when, when you grow up, when you're older? And a lot of them were saying things like, um, I want to be, well, I'm going to be a mom because my mom's a mom, <laughs> or I'm going to get married, or um, I'm going to be a YouTube star, or a singer, or a dancer. And that is great and all of those things have extremely wonderful value and being a caretaker and all of these things are wonderful things that contribute to society. 
But when I asked them why, they said it was because usually that's what my mom's done or what else can I be? And so seeing or hearing that from them firsthand um, and then meeting Ramorna and learning more about I can be basically solved the problem, which was we want to be able to show young girls, the younger, the better, what they are capable of. So I think she's had them meet police officers and fire women, firefighters. Um, she's had them meet barristers and she's had them meet women working in technology. And so it was a real treat for me to, at the time I was working at Bud and the guys were so great um, and let me, you know, support this initiative that Lamorna started and have a group of girls come into the office and they were able to walk around and they were absolutely stunned to see, you know, even as adults, sometimes those of us that are not technical will look at a developer's screen and just be like, completely blank, like what is going on? But they were just like stunned by all the code that was being written. Um, obviously they don't understand what's being written. And quite frankly, most days I do not either, but they were just like, this is so cool. They were um, absolutely fascinated with our graphic design team and, or the design team in general. And then we did a little exercise um, where we were talking about banking um, and digital banking. And trust me, it's hard enough to explain open banking to an actual banker, but it's even more difficult to explain to a seven to eight year old, but it was an incredible experience. And if you are in the UK, I definitely recommend reaching out to I can be because they are doing wonderful things. I'm listening to you and, and I almost feel like, holy cow, we, we would love to have something like that over here. I know that there are like a lot of pockets of activities and efforts trying to create um, role models, right, if you will, for, for younger children. And, um, but we need, we need more. So I might, I might ping you afterwards uh, for more do. on this. Yeah. So let's go back to FinTech a little bit. Um, you touched on a few things that, that was that fascinates and, and absolutely resonates with us. Um, you know, the topic around financial inclusion, the topic around, you know, using technology for good and how do we create a better world? So we noticed there seems to be more and more solutions, if you will, that, that enable consumers to pay at the point of sale, right? Even mm -hmm. small, seemingly small merchandise um, that lets them do, you know, hey, you can buy now and pay later. Um, now, there are different philosophies around it. Some people will say, well, you know, it enables people to be able to get access to, to things that they otherwise wouldn't have because, you know, of, of their paycheck and when it comes in and all of that. Um, it also, some people say, you know, in, in other countries, for example, in India, we talked to a founder that does something like this. And she said, you know, because a lot of those consumers, they don't qualify for traditional credit as the way we know mm -hmm. it. They're not included in the formal financial services system. And so this allows them to get access to things that otherwise they couldn't have because they don't have a credit card. Um, now there's the other side um, of me that sometimes I think about, well, will we end up promoting overspending, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps there will be people that 
maybe they really shouldn't be getting that extra handbag or extra pair of jeans or extra something. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what do you think, what is your view on that? Yeah, it's definitely something that I grapple with a lot. Um, and I think it's almost a broader societal <laughs> issue. Like just to, just to quote our dear Senator Elizabeth Warren, you know, big structural change is needed. Um, I think there's this fallacy that the more we have, the better off we will be. I don't know if that's a, a typically American trait or if it's just becoming a very global trait. Um, I'm always shocked when I see the statistics of like the amount of um, textile waste that we generate in like a month, for example, or the amount of plastic that we see in the oceans and all of this. And I wonder sometimes, um, you know, have we turned well we all are we are all consumers and in this great society that we've built but um to what end and for what good so on the one hand yes the way that i like to view it however is more from the perspective of um buying things i what my philosophy is lately as I grow older is kind of, and, and from a complete position of privilege, I will add is to buy less things of better quality. Um, and that tends to mean a higher price, which is kind of my view on the benefits of using these sort of products. Um, but more than anything, I think at Klarna and hopefully at our competitors in this new kind of revolution of, of alternative payment methods is a bit of education that comes with your personal finance and how debt works. Because I can say from personal experience and my mother would absolutely die of shame if she knew that I was talking publicly about this, but I have had a really terrible relationship with consumer credit. And that all started when I went to school, um, went off to UC Davis, had my mother said, you know, get a credit card with a low, low limit to start to build your credit. And that was smart of her on that part. Um, But what was not drilled in, or maybe she did, and I was just, you know, a teenage, teenage girl, completely ignoring my mother, was the fact that this is not free money. You know, debts need to be repaid. And I I really put myself in a terrible position of going, well, I've got the money now and it's 0% APR for the first year. So everything is great. Sailing, you know, smooth sailing. Everything's fine. I was buying things that I did not need really for, you know, an 18-year-old living in a dorm room. Like, you do not need a complete glassware set from anthropology, Nina, but I was nesting, I told myself, and I drove myself further and further into debt, and it's something that I am still um, grappling with if I'm completely open and honest about where I am in my financial life. Um, I even used SoFi, one of the brilliant fintech companies based in San Francisco, to consolidate my debt and bring that interest rate down. But I have 
<laughs> I am a victim. It's it's like that Mean Girls movie where raise your hand if you've ever been a victim of Regina George. It's like raise your hand if you've ever been a victim of consumer credit, not predatory consumer credit, because I you know there's a philosophical discussion to be had about whether all consumer credit is predatory, but I definitely view myself as having fallen into that trap. And so I think what we try to do is to teach people that kind of habit building of repaying. And with Klarna, for example, it's every two weeks, it's no interest, but you're repaying that and you get into that habit of actually paying your debt down week after week. Um, before graduating to something where, you know, maybe you do finally have an actual credit card and, you know, there are not such friendly interest rates depending on which bank you're with or, you know, which issuer you have. So I think broadly I try to view it, Klarna, as being both an option to, one, financially include the people that might not otherwise have been able to buy something that they need hopefully over want um, that is out of their price range, but also teach them and create that habit forming cycle to better educate on consumer debt and how it works so that we're not creating a million of me who are quite frankly, still anxious about it and, and worried about their financial life every single day. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Yeah, I think it really points to something though. I think there's this, you know, sort of misguided idea that um, as, as we move further and further and include more people financially into the system, mm. that uh, capitalism and consumerism have to go hand in hand. That this idea that, you know, you now have access to the ability to gain credit, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to go and buy the extra set of glassware that you didn't need before. Right. Uh, because I think that there's so many levels of people sort of over overindulging and overbuying. And, you know, we've seen a generation sort of shift to experiences and travel and other things as, as opposed to goods and, you know, really almost grasping um, the idea that movement and, and, you know, experiences around the world and travel and the rest is kind of more important uh, in the long yeah. run than sort of nesting until, you know, you start to have kids and all the rest. Um, <laughs> exactly. when, when you think about, you know, financial inclusion, there's still, you know, 1.7 billion people on the planet that don't have banking services. What would you, you know, provide them first? Because again, it's, it kind of goes from payments to credit and then it goes beyond that. But if we're talking about lifting up people out of poverty and lifting up, you know, people from sort of the, the lives that they perhaps have now that they could improve, like what other things do you think are important for FinTech to focus on? Yeah, so I think... I think there's a fallacy when we look at financial inclusion that everything is necessarily digital and on a smartphone. 
Um, and I'd be curious for both of your thoughts as well as you interact with a lot of startups and businesses that are doing a lot of great work in the financial inclusion space. Um, there's almost, and I'll probably be trolled mercilessly for this, a kind of like imperialism 2.0 sometimes when I look at financial inclusion apps and stuff like that where it's like, well, this worked for us in London, so we're just going to export that uh, to sub-Saharan Africa or to Brazil or, I mean, parts of Brazil or parts of India or China, for example. And I think, well, one, so it's not always something that needs to be tied to a smartphone, and that's something that we in our very privileged lives are like, well, duh, it should just be an app. Um, I'm constantly impressed by things or businesses, organizations that are doing really cool things like M-Pesa in Kenya. Um, my friend Benjamin is building something called Nala right now in Tanzania, and he's now in Uganda as well, where they're using basically SMS services or mobile mobile services um, with Safaricom in Kenya, for example, for M-Pesa to work, um, using the infrastructure that people are used to using where they are, meeting them where they are. Um, but another business that's really interesting to me is Tala, which is actually based in Santa Monica. And so what they do, if I'm correct, maybe the business model has changed since I first found out all about them, is basically microfinancing um, around the world. And I've been really interested to see basically what you're doing is providing credit to a small business effectively. And I'm really interested in that because which comes first is always a dilemma for me. A philosophical thing that I do actually stay up some nights thinking about is what comes first is it a credit line or is it does it come with is it a bank an actual banking account is there or is there a bigger thing at play which is just feeling secure in either because if you don't feel secure in that credit line there's no trust there or there's you don't feel that this bank account is secure or you can trust this bank then why would you use either um, you know, you're constantly hearing stories about people who are hoarding wads of cash underneath their mattress or in a, in a pot somewhere. And I'll be honest, my grandmother probably does the same thing. And so a lot of times I'm, I'm not an expert on financial inclusion, but I think that we need to question the the very relationship that we're trying to build when we're building these financial inclusion things or products. And that's not just in developing parts of the world, but also in our own backyard. So there are millions of underbanked Americans as well and millions of underbanked Brits as well. Um, and sometimes I wonder how could we be addressing that problem as well? Because in the US and the UK, we talk a lot about moving towards a cashless society. Well, the reality is that a lot of those underbanked people still very much rely on cash. So if we were to completely get rid of cash altogether, 
then are we exasperating the problem of, finan of financial exclusion? Um, I don't know if I've actually answered the question out there. I'm just like now spiraling <laughs> into this philosophical dread. Um, no, I think you're right on though. Just like, you know, I, I believe recently, um, Philadelphia City, City of Philadelphia, they enacted the regulations that's that a store has to accept cash because they have a sizable amount of number of people that don't otherwise have access to other forms of payment. And so their argument is if you don't let us use cash, if you do not accept cash, you are excluding us. And these are stores that, you know, sell food and, and things like that. So you can't tell someone, well, I'm sorry, you're hungry, but you can't have access to the food because you don't have a credit card um, or you don't have a digital payment. I mean, that that's, you know, right. So, so like to your point, financial inclusion extends beyond just a smartphone, extends beyond just an emerging economy. Right. And I've just, I've just looked it up. The, so the Federal Reserve estimated in 2018 that there are 55 million unbanked or underbanked adult Americans, which is about 22% of U.S. households. And I, mean, I think about that number. I, I, was, I was speaking to a friend who works at MasterCard, and we were discussing, you know, it's really great that there are so many initiatives going on in developing worlds. And we do, we should include everyone. Um, but there is our own backyard, our own house to look at sometimes. So I think we get caught up in that. Um, but yes, there are a lot of really great businesses um, abroad and elsewhere that are that are working on that. And I think there's also a little bit of cultural understanding that needs to go hand in hand with that. Um, so what I said about this like imperialism 2.0, um, you know, the idea that we can just plop down um, and I, it's something I think about a lot for myself because I have considered in the past building some sort of financial inclusion product or service and that remains to be seen but a lot of it is understanding whether there's a need for the product or service that I'm building and that's this extends to just fintech in general right like is there a need for this thing or am I just pushing it onto people and I I was talking to my one of my best friends. She works for Engie, which is a French energy company. And she works um, primarily in Kenya, Nigeria, for energy access with mini grids. And that's something as well that we really don't think about is like, yes, we want to bank a lot of people, but a lot of people don't even have electricity in a lot of these places that we talk about. And so we've explored different things like how do you... Um, how do you galvanize small you know, micro businesses and how, how would it be possible to work with a business like Engie who's doing these um, mini grids around Nigeria or Kenya or Rwanda and giving access so that someone can open a hair salon and have electricity to have that hair dryer, whatever um, in their village or wherever it is that they are. So, really un culturally understanding. And I think that that means being on the ground and, and doing the hard work. And there are lots of people that are doing that. Um, but I think more from where I stand and in the circles in which I run, 
the idea that we can just fix it from where we sit in our ivory towers is is frustrating sometimes. But we I'm like to get think that. that. No, no, no. <laughs> don't don't worry. Don't worry. But we we like to think that though, right? Because in that at least it makes us feel good. Um, yes. I think in a lot of ways. Um, There's actually a really interesting book that I I just ordered from Big Tech Amazon, but it's called Winners Take All. Um, oh, I heard about that one. I would yeah. love to hear from you what you think about it. And it's basically um, a book. Let me just make sure that I've got the author's name right. By Anand, oh God, I can't pronounce his last, his surname. Um, but he was on The Daily Show, which is why um, I probably heard him because I'm not so secretly in love with Trevor Noah. And he was basically talking about this idea that um, the wealthiest in the world are the ones who kind of go on this charade of philanthropy and charity. Um, and I think actually the subtitle is the, ele the elite charade of changing the world. And kind of, yes, we have all these foundations, but what really are they doing besides allowing us to pat ourselves on the back for, you know, I donated $500 to this charity and it's, I'm a good person now. And don't get me wrong, sometimes that is what we are capable of doing and that's we need to know what our limits are and not everyone can flock to the developing world, but um, there is a bit of, of performance art to it sometimes that frustrates me. So let me ask you this, given everything that you're passionate about, given everything that drives what you do, what you read, um, what do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now? Crystal oh. Hall, we won't hold you to that, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, don't hold me to that. Um, so yes, um, I'm very, very passionate about financial inclusion. I'm very passionate about women um, and women's rights globally. I I go in between, I think we all probably do, and some of us are just better at hiding it than I am. These swings of one day I am going to just quit my job and set up a coffee shop in Costa Rica and <laughs> just hang out, um, go zip lining through the, you know, through the rainforest. And that's my life. And then also going, I'm going to be president one day, which that's not me actually saying I'm going to be president one day, but I still am figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm supposed to be grown up. And the amount of bills I have to pay would suggest that I am now, in fact, a grown up. But <laughs> I think I would love to see myself in a role that is tackling these systemic issues, whether that is in a legislative role or whether that's on the ground um, working in a developing nation. I have so much respect for my friend Clara. Like she, she's out there. Like her, her trainers are covered in red earth and I love it because she just knows so much um, and I can only read about it and, and watch her videos from afar. So it's, it's a lot that I've considered. I have um, a really deep uh, 
the need for public service and public service can take on so many different forms. It could be, you know, working as a civil servant. It could be running for office one day. It could be working in the private sector, but doing something for, for good, for public good. Um, I'd like to be doing something that's more in line with that and, you know, watch this space. Maybe one day I will found something of my own. But for now, all that debt that I have needs to be addressed. So no, I'm very, very happy um, in the work that I'm doing and, and moving forward. Um, just, you know, I'm a very, as I said before, an insatiably curious person. So I view myself as an autodidact. And if there's something I want to learn about or know about, I get a book and I read about it and I will underline and highlight and post-it note it until I understand. And so I've been doing a lot of that right now about banking in general. Um, so why there, there's a great book called debt and I'm just, it's, it is a brick of a book, but I'm slowly making my way through that. Capital is another good book, trying to understand how money works. Um, maybe more applicable to the Western world, but then, you know, I think there's also scope for me in the future to do a bit of traveling and get my own boots on the ground and, and learn from doing and learn from being in these places. Um, you know, I think my, it would be my father's dream come true for me to go back to India and, and do something of purpose in India. So we shall see. That's awesome. I'll, I'll share with you actually a couple of years ago, I thought about um, starting a coffee shop too, but that, yeah. that quickly got squashed after a, a good friend of mine told me what it would take. I'm like, okay, oh, yeah. all right, grab that. And um, guess what I'm doing right now? Doing something I absolutely did not think I would do 10 years ago. So right. we will catch up with you on that one. I would love to meet you in person one of these days um, because unfortunately for the listeners, you won't be able to see the look on Nina's face, but like literally looking at her on the screen, she looks like she is going to like burst with enthusiasm and energy and everything <laughs> Um, and it's just wonderful. Um, so I'm a very emotive person. I went to a play with my friend last week in London, and the director after there was a Q and A, and and the producer was there, and the producer actually said, "You were the most emotive audience members we've seen ever." Um, <laughs> so I, I can't help it. I I wear my heart on my sleeve, um, and we love that. We need to get you on the panel on the stage together one day because that will beat all the very, very boring people that we all <laughs> We won't oh, name names. No, they're not boring. <laughs> they're just misunderstood, Theo. Right, because they just get so used to being on stage all the time, seeing the same thing for like, you know, 30 times a year. Oh, yeah. We need fresh faces. We need fresh voices. We need you. The world needs more you. So thank you so much. That was perfect, Nina. But thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I wish we could keep going. We, we probably should continue and do a repeat of this. Um, but let's make the goal of doing this 
in person next time. I would love that. I would love all of you, both of you.